Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. This is more than a podcast. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side, And from the reigning world champion, Atlanta Braves, I'm Kurt Dupuy from Atlanta. Hey, dude. Hey, buddy. What's happening? You ever sit next to somebody at dinner? Um, sometimes that can be a bad thing. You get stuck with someone at dinner and you're just like, oh, man, like I've got to communicate with this person for a couple of hours. Um, I had the exact opposite uh, situation with our guest today, Dan Catone. So I fly down um, to attend a dinner. My Southern California guy, Jake Willis, was hosting a meeting with this um, LPL team. They're an RIA under LPL called uh, Golden State Wealth Management. So it's a big group. We're hosting their dinner. And I, I sat next to this guy, Dan Catone, who's a CEO. And, and just like one of the most fascinating people, like two hours went by, snap, just listening to this guy talk well you you build him perfectly because yeah. you know when you told me about that interaction like oh yeah i'd like to have this guy on the podcast i mean we, you could have not talked about financial advisory work at all and he would right. have been a, an infinitely interesting person so as i mentioned he's the ceo of golden state wealth management he started his career actually uh in geneva switzerland he was a part of the united nations high commission on refugees so just that alone just asking him about that would be amazing um, he got out of that business, um, started in wealth management in 2001. As you'll hear in the interview, really didn't have any background in it, didn't know what he was going to do. He's just like, okay, this is an interesting career. Built a great business, um, you know, and now again, launched Golden State, which you'll hear him talk about. Uh, he's been nominated for top 40 under 40. He runs, in addition to Golden State, a variety of different businesses. He's Indiana Jones. He, yeah, seriously. <laughs> he's real yeah, life I mean, Indiana Jones. I know. He goes and he collects artifacts. He's a pilot. He's got a master's degree in theology. Like, I was just and he, a genius level guy. He's one of those guys. I sort of felt the same way when we were talking to Dr. Winston, just one of these guys whose brain is just on an entirely different level. What, so. what was that Seinfeld episode where Kramer just decides he's going to sleep for 15 minutes every three hours <laughs> so he can get <laughs> more done? I feel like that is Dan Catone in a nutshell. That's, I don't know how the guy sleeps. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it, it's it, it's just an incredible dinner, and and uh, invited him on the show, and he was kind to uh, to come on the show, and now he's launching his own podcast as well, which you'll hear him talk about. But uh, but this is going to be a good episode because you know it, it, they really are doing uh, some interesting things over at Golden State Wealth Management, and we you know we want to talk to folks that are that are kind of on the cutting edge of where this business is going, and I do think that they uh, they fit that bill. Exactly. The stories and the voices of people on the edge of that change. I think that's what we talk about. So strap in for an awesome chat with Dan Catone. And as always, make sure you hit that subscribe button, tell a friend. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback for side, not me, because I don't want to hear about it. You can reach <laughs> us at the whole truth at touchstonefunds.com. And here is our interview with Dan Catone. We are thrilled, thrilled to be joined uh, by our friend Dan Catone. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you, gentlemen. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. Provide an overview of your background. Sure. So I am the CEO of Golden State, the Golden State family of companies, and I'm also the founder and CEO of Redwood Investment Group. I've been a financial advisor since basically 9-11. That's when I got started in the industry. And I think like a lot of folks that started at that point, that time, we've seen nothing but trouble, (laughs) whether it be 9-11 or, you know, multiple wars and the crash of 08 and COVID and and now World War III. So it, it, it's kind of been an interesting time to grow up in the industry, uh, but it's the, industry, it's the only industry really I've ever known as a professional, uh, you know, and as an adult. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit about my background. If you want to know edu- educational stuff, I can do that too. Yeah, I mean, I, I had I was fortunate to have dinner with, uh, with you and your group, just an amazing organization. And what struck me about you. you is, which we'll get into, what struck me about you is, how does someone who was working at the United Nations get into wealth management? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, accidentally, really, um, I worked for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and helped draft both speeches and rules and regulations to protect people from being kidnapped. And I worked in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, for a man named David Hussein, under the um, auspices of the you know the, who was the head of the UNHCR. Her name was Sagato Ogata at the time. And this was you know shortly after the Rwanda-Uganda crisis. Uh, the Great Lakes crisis and the slaughter that happened there, and then Kosovo and and everything in Yugoslavia, which now is uh, apropos of our current situation with Russia and the Ukraine. Right. Uh, came back to the United States, realizing I did not want to work outside the country in like Kazakhstan or something like that, even though my wife and I were both hired to go work there and teach English and work for the government. And we decided, you know, that was not the the place we wanted to raise our children in a post 9-11 environment. And so I, I went to work in finance because I thought, you know, stocks are interesting. I did not know anything about stocks. Wow. I was 21 years old. So I <laughs> I don't know if you know anything about anything at 21 years old. <laughs> but I I thought, you know, these are interesting. And I remember my first time sitting down with a wholesaler and the wholesaler said that they were a value shop. It was Lord Abbott, actually. <laughs> we could dear friends. I said, oh yeah, value shop. I said, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> but I had gone from international relations, you know, background in studies in the Cold War. I was my BA, and then going to work for um, work for Edward Jones actually uh, early on. So just needed a job, needed to pay the bills, and got into finance. How about that? Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. It all, it all works out though, you know. Well, we aside and I have talked numerous times. Like just asking people how they got in into this is it's yeah. the great greatest conversation starter you have because. Yeah. There's few, um, like there's not one archetype for it, right? There's everyone's got their own journey no. and path. It's interesting. Well, for me, it's it's super accidental, and I think a lot of folks are a lot more deliberate than I am. They're like, you know, I, they got their degree in finance, and then they got their MBA, and then they're like, I'm going to be a financial advisor. And no, nah, I was just a dummy. You know, I was just a kid, and uh, <laughs> clearly not. I need I needed to make sure my my apartment, you know, rent was paid, and it just so happens it worked out really well. I, I it's funny because. I didn't know if I'd be good at it or not, but I'm a hard worker. And I, I had a trainer at Ed Jones and at, at the end of the, the week of training, which didn't go great for me, <laughs> we were doing this interview and kind of exit interview of sorts. And she said, you know, Dan, I don't think financial services is the right. Is that right? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> After yeah. You were already we, in. <laughs> we, yeah. But the funny thing is I told her, I said, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, uh, Linda. I said, I, I have no other choice here. <laughs> so I'm in for a penny, in for a pound. I said, I, I might not be very good at it, but I will work very, very hard. 
and uh, harder than anybody maybe. And and I, I she says, oh, I hope it works out for you. Two years later, I was teaching a class with her in finance. So it did work out and we became dear friends. But, you know, you, you don't always know what you're going to be good at until you try it. Sure. Uh, so can we talk about those first few years at at Jones? What did you, what, what strategies did you utilize you in our brief time talking, you seem like an intentional person. So I don't think you probably yeah. went about that haphazardly, but what did, <laughs> no. what was your strategy for growth this first few years? Yeah. Well, it, it's a, it's a good question, Kurt, but I may think you may be giving me too much credit. <laughs> I, I suppose like I can be an intentional person. Uh, I don't know how intentional I was at 21, 22 years old. Maybe you were much more intentional than I was. Hell but no. I, I remember <laughs> I, I was motivated to make sure that we, we could stay in our apartment. And <laughs> I, I would go door to door. I did the door knocking thing like Edward Jones teaches. And um, I was pretty good at it. I called it treasure hunting. And every time I'd knock on someone's door, I felt like I was pulling one more shovel of dirt off the ground to see what was down there. And most of the time there was nothing there. I also pretended I was running for mayor. And so I would go door to door and I'd, I'd knock on the door and I'd say, you know, hey, my name is Dan Catone. I just started a business here in town and I thought I'd get out here and introduce myself to my neighbors and I'd extend my hand and they'd open the door and we'd shake and then we'd go from there. Wow. I'll, I'll tell you real quick on intentionality. I thought, you know, I need to get some clients that have money. I didn't have any money. And I thought, who's rich? Well, lawyers are rich, right? So I need to get some lawyer clients. So I went to a law office out of the phone book, and it was an estate attorney. And that estate attorneys, I mean, who, who has more money than an estate attorney, right? Well, I went to the receptionist, and she uh, wasn't really giving me the time of the day. I said, but you don't want to be, I, I said, I'm not looking for a new client. I said, I'm just looking for somebody who I might be able to refer a client to who needs estate work. I had one client when I knocked on their door, literally one client. So I was honest. I needed to send someone to him. And she said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll sit you down with him. And so we sat down. So Howard is his name. We sit across the desk from each other. And we started talking about his practice and whatnot. And I said, you know, I would be uncomfortable ever receiving a referral from you unless you knew exactly what I put my clients through, you know, what their experience is like. I said, so would you permit me to take you through my process? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just no, I'll never become your client. I've already got my guidance. And I said, that's fine. And he reached behind him and he grabbed a huge binder. It was like three inches thick and handed it to me. And when you're a new financial advisor and somebody hands you a three-inch binder, you know it's really good news because <laughs> it's full of Info, money. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, two weeks later, he did become a client. And uh, wow. to this day, he, he and his family and his entire family, all kids and everybody are all clients of mine. And we've all become dear friends. So what, 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 there was, what was the angle there? Because you had a process and you could explain it? That's, that was well, what? It was an after 9-11. I mean, people were hiding under their desk. It was a strange time to be an investor. I think it was a strange time to be an American. And financial advisors had grown up in this environment where markets just went up. I mean, we were just coming after the, the dot-com crash was really in full force. And, and then and 01 really kicked everyone in the teeth. And so being a young, hungry financial advisor who was actually talking to people was my only advantage. Hmm. That's, it's easy to win a client when their financial advisor isn't even calling them. Yeah. Fair. So. But there's a ton of money in motion back then. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so so be present, actually knock on doors. What what other lessons did you learn from those first few years? Just never stopping. Constant momentum. I think that's that's kind of a rule for life in general. You know, it's like <laughs> General Washington, it didn't matter. He just kept fighting, fighting and fighting and fighting to win. 
it may not be the industry for me, but I will work harder than anybody. Right. And I did. So you built this great business. So talk us through the decision to to launch an RIA, Golden State. How did that come about? Why did you think you wanted to do it? All that. Well, now we're now we're getting into real intentionality. Um, I think the biggest differentiator between our firm and a lot of other firms is every single thing we've done is purpose built. So Golden State Wealth Management is the first RIA that I founded alongside Redwood Investment Group. And we built it literally with zero assets, zero financial advisors, zero clients, which is very different than the typical RIA. The typical RIA that I run into that uh, you know might be a theoretical competitor, we like to say we don't have competitors, but is, you know, it's generally speaking, a 55 or 60 year old guy who's made a couple million bucks a year being a financial advisor. He's got a nice office, some corner office, and he's got an extra spot. And so he finds a financial advisor to put in that spot. He's like, well, now I've got a firm. And then he finds another and then another, and now he's got an RIA. That is not a purpose-built RIA. That's an accidental RIA. That's how I got into finance. <laughs> Golden State is the exact opposite of that. We thought, what can we create that would be something that would be attractive to me as a financial advisor? And we built that. And that's Golden State Wealth Management. And then we thought, okay, let's do it again, but even better in a different way. And we built Golden State Equity Partners, which is not a hybrid. It's pure RIA. And we thought, well, gosh, we need asset management. So we built an asset management company and we built an insurance brokerage and we built a mortgage company. And now we're building a digital advice platform. But each of these institutions is purpose built. It's built to solve a set of problems for financial advisors. And, and it's worked really well. People seem to like it. What are those problems for the incoming financial professional were you looking to solve? Or like what kind of world were you trying to create there? Uh, that's a great question, Kurt. So first of all, thank you. It's not. It might. Yeah. <laughs> it might not be what you think. Um, first and foremost is human dignity. Every single person that we interact with is treated with dignity and respect. Our basic ethos is very simple. We leave everyone better off for having met us, whether they be an industry ally or a friend, a potential customer, a client of one of our financial advisors. That's the rule. And you know what's shocking about that? It's the golden rule, kind of, isn't it? It's the golden rule, yeah. But that's not shocking. That's not how most financial services treat employees and customers. Hmm. Most financial services companies treat financial advisors as revenue sources. And that's why they adjust their comp every year and they tinker here and there. I thought, what if we could create a place where a financial advisor always owns their work product all the time? and are honored and respected all the time. What will that attract? What kind of person will that attract? Well, we started seeing that. We started attracting those types of people. And you know what? We don't lose financial advisors. Very, very few. I mean, I've let a couple go because they didn't fit that ethos. Interesting. So in terms of problems, human dignity, that's the first one. Human beings are not machines. We are not cogs to be plugged into an industrial machine to make money for someone else. Mm. And that's what Golden State's all about. How'd you build out your team? Talk about the team that runs Golden State right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, I think like minds group together. And I like to say we collect amazing human beings. <laughs> each of our financial, each of our partners, each of our employees. I mean, first of all, every single employee after one year is an owner. Oh, wow. That's, that's one of our foundational values is ownership, period. 
Um, but the, the types of folks that we, we work with, whether it be my partners, John Nahas and Patrick Tone and Kyle Farrell, or, you know, these are exceptional human beings in their own right, often from completely different industries. Like, for example, my brother, Matt Catone, he was like the top guy at the LA Times, the Tribune company, and he would go to the Oscars and produce all the movie ads and all that type wow. of stuff. Just a remarkable human being. Or Jen Nahas, uh, who's John Nahas's wife. She's our chief marketing officer. Uh, she's a, an accomplished artist. Uh, she ran the marketing for one of the largest real estate trusts in the world. You know, that's the type of human being that we look for. So how many FAs are under the umbrella right now at Golden State? I think we're about 70. Uh, we run just oh, about wow. $4 billion. Yeah, we're a pretty good, pretty good size organization. Not, not bad from zero. Um, you know, we, we generally try to bring on one or so financial advisor a month. Um, you know, we, we don't want to bite off more than we can consume in a sense. You know, there's only so much work we can do to make sure it's of the highest possible quality. Excellent. Yeah. So people are clearly gravitating towards the story. So, so you're getting all these FAs on board. Talk about some of the things you're working with your folks right now. Like what are the key topics? Where are you spending your time? Yeah. So I have a really cool job. Um, basically my job is to come up with ideas <laughs> and then to find people to do the ideas. <laughs> I, I do a quick little start. bit of work, but yeah, yeah that's yeah, a Colby I, term, I just, quick I, start that we, yeah, you're yeah, a quick start. Right. Exactly. So, um, right now I am like focused as a, like a laser on emergent investor classes. So it's my position that the industry is largely broken. Um, and I, and I, I say this to my financial advisor friends and our partners, there's a timer on your business. And the reality is every single client that a financial advisor has is going to leave them. It's just a matter of time. Either they're going to fire them or they're going to quite frankly pass away. Uh, or you're going to sell that book to someone else who's going to manage that client. So that's the future for every single client. And that means that we have to find replacements for those clients. And if you're not engaging, the largest percentage of the U.S. workforce right now is millennials. If you're not engaging millennials, you don't have longevity in your practice. Sure. You have a 10 to 20 year time frame until it's worthless. You know, and the, with the majority of the workforce being a millennial, and most people don't even know that. And what percentage of your book is is under the age of forty? I mean, most people it's two percent, three percent. But these are folks that want to invest. These are people that have money. This is an emergent investor class, and the entire industry says we don't care because I want fifty-eight year olds with two. I want fifty-eight year olds with two million dollars. That's what the industry says. And so my my focus is helping financial advisors create value in their practice. And the way you create value in that practice is sustainability. Sustainability is not just recurring revenue. It's the type of client. It's the age of client. It's the way in which you engage your client. And another mantra that we have is we want to create products and services that not only are great for, for customers and clients, but are delivered in the way the client prefers. Look at Amazon. What is Amazon's product? Is Amazon product books in the Kindle? I mean, kinda, but not really. Their product is the delivery method because they've created a way in which people wish to consume and now everyone uses them. And my question to you might be, has financial services created a delivery method that people under 40 want? It's a good question. It's a good point. Well, none, none that are that are 
Amazon-like, right? Like this is what everyone is right. trying to figure out. Right. Right. And they're all onto something. I mean, Betterment and all these different current firms like that, or even Robinhood to some degree, I'm not a big fan yeah. of theirs, but you know, personal capital. I mean, these are great institutions that are changing the way in which people consume financial services. And I think we can even take that further. And and we're working on that. So we are going to beta beta testing on in June on our digital device platform. Um, there are features that we are current under, currently under patent review on. Um, I can't discuss those things because everybody listening to this would have to sign an NDA. <laughs> so we can't do that. But we are we are going to be doing this because we want to solve that problem. I want to ask a thousand questions. And if I if I need to sign the NDA to get these answers, that, that's fine. <laughs> One at a time. Um, so for the digital platform, who's the target audience? Who's the target client? Uh, really, the target for the digital advice platform is going to be investors who wish to have instantaneous delivery and execution of professional portfolio management. So that can really be of any age group. I mean, it could be someone who's 60 years old. It could be someone who's 25 years old, um, because quite frankly, both those groups of people consume products in an Amazon type way. Correct. The second type of criteria is going to be customization. So people who want tailored, customized portfolios that that are a fit to them. Now, when I say a fit to them, I don't mean risk and reward. I think that's the way financial advisors talk. We say, okay, well, the, the, the client wants X risk, they want Y reward, and we match those two things. But that's not a human person. It's not a true fit for them. It's, it's, a, it's an untailored suit. It's like, what do you wear to a wedding? A suit. Okay, but you have to tailor the suit. Yeah, there we go. Okay, what does that mean? For example, when I look for an investment manager, I want to choose investments that don't force me to violate my conscience to achieve my retirement goals. Hmm. And why is it that we ask people to do that? Well, I think a lot of it is based on a lie that if you, if you, sack, if you, if you tailor a portfolio based upon personal values, you lose return. Well, the evidence just isn't there for Correct. that. It's just not. But why do we keep saying that? You know, and also one size does not fit all. An ESG portfolio that fits me is different than an ESG portfolio that fits one of you. And that's okay. And so if we can create a product and a delivery method that is instantaneous, digital, and high quality, that, that actually does portfolio management in an effective and efficient manner while matching the person's values, who doesn't want that? I had a recent uh, ride share experience, I'm chatty, where the lady was in her 50s. She yeah. was only doing ride share to build up enough capital to buy a home. Then she was going to quit her W2 job, do ride share, um, yeah. and started talking about finances. And I am clearly not a financial advisor. That's, that's not what I do. But her level of questions, like she had left a previous job and just thought she had yeah. to take her 401k with her. How does a digital platform, yours or another, solve the problem for simply undereducated, like uh, folks that are just not financially literate? Like can technology solve right. both of those problems? And are we talking about the same platforms or are we talking different yeah. platforms? Sorry, that's really a, long that's question. a fascinating idea. So you ask questions in paragraph form. I answer them in book form. So <laughs> Perfect. I apologize. Perfect. So, we'll see you in three hours. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So Kurt, I mean, it's a funny question in a way, because imagine you were having a conversation with the same person about medical issues. Do we expect people to have a deep knowledge of the surgery in which they need? 
No. No, but but you, we do. Uh, my wife and I, who works in healthcare, we talk about this. It, oh, cool. uh, finance, healthcare, legal, yeah. like all of those professions, yeah. you have to be your own advocate. That's why you get a second sure. opinion, right? Because it's like, oh, yeah, guy yeah. number one told me something. I'm not sure right. if I agree with all that, or or maybe right. he just didn't talk to my level. So I'm going to go to person right. number two. So I think there's some crossover between industries there. There is, but but I think what we're doing is we're conflating two types of knowledge. There's really two types of knowledge, both in medicine and finance and general professions. There's technical knowledge and behavioral knowledge. So on the technical side, you have like portfolio construction, Roth versus traditional, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's my job. On the other side is behavioral knowledge. How do I respond? How do I interact? What, what question types should I ask? Mm-hmm. You know, that type of stuff. Finance is largely dominated by math folks. And we're really good at the technical side. But they, we aren't so good, Ain't so good. on the behavioral <laughs> finance side, right? right? I mean, we all know the – I think I don't, can't remember who did the study, but the study about the Vanguard funds where you look at the index actual performance versus the experience of the actual client. Right. And they're night and day. Right. The, the index performance did 11.2% a year for 30 years and the average client got 3.1%. Okay, what's the differential there? Is it a technical knowledge question? No, it's a behavioral finance question. Prenatal cortex, so, that's, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. And so in a digital advice experience, you have to deliver whatever you need to deliver in order to help the person walk down the knowledge of behavioral finance to make the right decisions and just to be able to raise their hand and have someone with the technical knowledge step in and help them. Our platform, which I can't get in the details on, actually has that hand-raising concept built into it. So a person can choose, as always should be the case, consumer choice, consumer choice, consumer choice. Alvin Toffler wrote about this in Future Shift and all of his books in the 1990s where he predicted the rise of like customization of cars and stuff like that. But it's true in finance. We want to push that choice back to the consumer they do not have to have the technical knowledge. They just have to be able to raise their hand and have access to the technical knowledge. And it comes from general questions. You know, for example, if someone gets married and they buy a new house, a system should be able to prompt them to say, you might need life insurance. And here's why. So I can start at my, pick my own path and start at a certain level, or you could have sure. no foundation and you can start from yep. scratch and accelerate or decelerate as you see fit. That, so that's what you're describing? Yeah. I mean, one, you pick the language uh, based upon your own preference. You pick the learning style that you're going to choose to, to walk down. You're going to choose how often you engage with the platform. Um, but it's the opposite in financial services right now. We set the meeting schedule. We tell them how many times they're going to meet with us before we open an account. We tell them which accounts they're going to open and then which investments they're going to use and why. That prescriptive process is not modern. It's 1975 everywhere in finance right now. Hmm. I mean, it's a pre-internet financial system. The, the most advanced financial system that we're using that's internet-based, that's commonly used, is just online account access. I mean, that is 1999 stuff. <laughs> That's crazy to me. That's AOL dial-up like, right there. It's AOL dial-up. We're Prodigy. Remember Prodigy? I mean, we're waiting waiting for the mail to come with the CD-ROM to install the upgrade on Prodigy with this stuff. I mean, that's 
nutty. So a digital Some advice nice platform. nice elder millennial jokes in there. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, that's my joke. I'm one year older than the oldest millennial and one year younger than a Gen Xer. I'm like sandwiched between these two generations that see money radically different mm -hmm. and see engagement and consumption radically different. And the financial services industry just has no clue. Do you see, Kurt, why I wanted to have him on the show? We haven't even gotten into the non-financial topics yet. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm really hijacking it. So yeah, I'll, I'll no, no, no. Uh, that's, it's a wonderful, wonderful back and forth, which is which makes the best. Uh, interviews. Um, yeah. But for people who are going to want to hear more of you, which there will be, uh, you're launching a podcast. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually launched last week. It's called Money Forward. And the idea is, is pretty simple. Um, I want to engage with people that are interesting, that have ideas that are unusual and um, kind of avant-garde. I want to discuss topics of the emergent classes of investors, uh, whether it be the rise of the millennial investor, uh, their millennial financial advisor, and the things that are changing in financial services. But I also want to kind of go off script a little bit uh, in this and talk with people about things that are only tangentially related to finance. Um, you know, For example, people talk about structural racism, and it's a hot topic right now, CRT and things like that. And examining structures that exist within society that have positive and negative effects on the way in which we think about and engage money, that's a fascinating topic to me. And so my podcast is going to go in that to that place. And I don't want to dominate those conversations. I really just want to bring people on that have these ideas and concepts, whether I agree with them or disagree with them, I don't care. I just want to hear what people think because I find people to be fascinating. Yeah, ch make sure you check out that podcast. I'll certainly be subscribing. Uh, one other Thanks, one other topic we wanted to bring up is you landed on the 40 under 40 list. Talk a little bit about that. I hardly remember it. I'm 40. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a lifetime yeah, ago. Cool. Yeah, a lifetime ago. I don't know. That was really cool. I mean, I'm not one who like goes after awards or anything like that. And somebody nominated me. I didn't know. And uh, I won it. I mean, I've got on the list or whatever. And I think probably the coolest thing about it is I went to New York to meet with the other 40 under 40 people. And holy smokes, did it give me like hope for the future. Oh, is that right? Oh, really? Because, yeah. The other 39 people, with basically no exception, were interesting and engaged and were talking about value orientation. And and it just it wasn't a discussion about what our favorite stock was or which mutual fund manager we like. It was a totally different way of looking at finance. And I'm really, really glad I had the opportunity to do so. So we, um, a, a guest we had on the podcast um, pretty early on, Dr. Daniel Crosby, he talked about how uh, hiring for financial professionals has changed drastically. It used to be like an MBA out of like boot school of business, but then they'd burn out in five years because they don't have the skills right. to now. And it's, it's probably almost fully, you know, the fulcrum has corrected hiring higher EQ type people. And since it, is that what you're describing? Is that like, it's not the nuts and bolts technical stuff. It's the people who understand people yeah. that are, are successful, yeah. especially in the under 40 cohort. Yeah. You're, you're a hundred percent correct, Kurt. Yes. It is like I was talking about It's Well, yeah. I mean, it's like the two types of knowledge I just said. I mean, it's technical knowledge versus behavioral finance and you know, you, you can have, I mean, a computer has technical knowledge. That's the easy part. Correct. I mean, anybody, any, anything can do that. It's finding someone who can look someone else in the eye, relate to them, engage them where they are, help them 
figure out where they are, where they want to go, and then build the bridge to get there. And that's a different skill set. We'll transition maybe to to the last question. Um, and I will say, since since you and I sat down for dinner, I think I bought four books that you recommended to me, which are, oh, cool. are yeah, in, and, and so despite, you know, all this stuff, starting his own RAA, the private businesses, I think one of the most interesting things about you uh, is your archaeology passion. So maybe we can close with mm-hmm. that. Talk about that a little well, bit. Well, it's interesting to me. Yeah. Interesting um, to me. Yeah. So uh, it's actually kind of funny the way I, I came to fall in love with archaeology and specific Egyptology. I say I'm an amateur Egyptologist. Because uh, I have no, I have no academic background whatsoever. I'm competent in reading hieroglyphs, and and uh, and I, I know a lot about Egyptology and and generally archaeology. But it was an accident because every year I try to find a topic that I both have no interest in and know nothing about, and then I just start learning. Nice. Because what I found is I may have no interest in it because I know nothing about it, and so I did that. I thought, you know, I I know literally nothing about Egypt, like nothing. I know there's a city called Cairo and there's pyramids. And so I started, um, I, I did a class, Bob Breyer, who's a, a world-renowned Egyptologist and an expert on mummification, has a, a class you could take off of Audible. It's like 25 hours or something like that. And I, it's basically like 20 bucks or free or something. It's, it's amazing. And I, I listened to that. And I thought, where have you been my whole life? I mean, I, it's like I fell in love and, and I just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And then I thought, how cool would it be if I could have an artifact? I mean, something that someone crafted with their hands with loving care 3,000 years ago, and it somehow got lost somewhere, and now we found it. I mean, that's a fascinating thing to me. And unfortunately, the audience can't see it, but behind me are some of my artifacts. Um, you know, I, I have a, a piece of pottery. It's a full pot, actually, unbroken, with a handle design on it that might be the first of its kind. And it was found in, in Cyprus, so it's a Cypriot piece. It's Egyptian made, so it somehow was transported there, so it has a story. And then it has a type of handle, and you can see it over my, my ear here, that I've never seen older than it. So it might be the potter who invented that type of pottery handle. I mean, that's pretty cool. And how do you date that? Cool. I, what, what do you date that to? There's a lo- this, this particular piece behind me is this pot that, we, that they found in Cyprus that's about 1500 BC, so call it 3500 wow, years old. And it's serious? perfectly intact. Yeah, and there's lots of ways you date it. Um, you look for encrustations, so the way in which minerals grow on the pottery, pottery design and style, the place it's found, um, the comparison of other things found around it. It's it's more of an art than a science, and I think archaeologists go too far in their certainty on a lot of different subjects. I am kind of conspiracy theory on the subject. <laughs> you know, people like Graham Hancock. I mean, I love his books. I mean, it's it's speculative, silly the- uh, archaeology, but I think it's really cool. How do you get your hands on these? Like, where do you go to acquire them? Is there, uh, I picture like a trade show or something? I don't even know. Well, um, I don't want to incriminate myself, but I have been to other countries and and obtained items. And then I I do have dealers across the country that are reputable, high quality dealers. There's different associations you have to belong to. Um, I've I've self-trained myself to identify fraudulent pieces, which is probably half the pieces that you'll ever oh, find right? in archaeology, especially Egyptology. Yeah, Egyptology's got tons and tons of fakes. For me, they're really obvious now. But I bought a fake when I was first starting. I paid thousands of dollars for oh, a, no. a fake. and it's. Um, but uh, he was arrested by the FBI. Oh. <laughs> so Amex gave me a refund on the Sweet. piece, which was really nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I learned my lesson, though. <laughs> 
what did we cover? We covered the stardom business. We covered his RIA, and we ended with uh, artifacts and Egyptology. That's that's a podcast yeah. interview. Dan, we yeah. really appreciate you coming on. This was fantastic, which I knew it would be. Plug uh, the the podcast again um, and give out the Golden Gate uh, a Golden State email address. I mean, uh, website. Sure. So my podcast is called Money Forward. And we're going to be discussing uh, emergent and interesting ideas in the industry and the emergent investor class. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting for folks. I'm going to do interviews of people that are not ordinarily interviewed on financial podcasts. Um, our website for our RIA is teamgoldenstate.com. And there's lots of good information there. And one thing I can make a commitment for anybody who talks to us is we will leave you better off for having met us. But thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you to Dan Catone. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to the Costanza Corner, where we like to end the show on a high note. Take it away, Steve. That's a I don't know. I, have, I feel like I have like an announcer voice today. I don't know. I think maybe I like it. Can we keep it? On. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here it? for it. I think I think it's a keeper. So uh, I've got a bold statement to make. Uh, breathing turns out is very important. Were you aware that breathing was important? <laughs> Shocker. So I was reading this this positive article, which is what the Costanza Corner is all about. And essentially, the 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 um, the title of the article was "How Humans Can Fight Viruses by Breathing Deeply," and it gets into the science of if you focus on breathing and 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 actually like really focus on deep breaths, it forces the body to create this immune response that's better in fighting viruses. It was a WISS Institute at Harvard University that did this study on breathing. But the reason that I bring this up is beyond the fact that that this article was there that shows that it triggers immune responses, and besides the fact. We know the benefits and the science around meditation. There's a couple of other books that I've read recently that were about the importance of breathing. And I want to share this with both you and the audience. One is called Breath by James Nestor, N-E-S-T-O-R. And the second one is a guy uh, by the name of Wim Hof, W-I-M-H-O-F-F, the Wim Hof Method. And he goes into not only the deep breathing breathing patterns, uh, he also does some other cool stuff like like swims in, in ice and claims that like, you know, cold water immersion. That's a thing now, yeah. I'm no expert on this and this is a short segment, so I'm not going to get into deep, but I've just been, been more and more interested on, and, and there's more and more science around the fact that if you just, the focus on breathing technique, there's really powerful potential uh, benefits. Do you do this in your life? Do you practice breathing? I've started to do some of the Wim Hof method. It's just like, it's about like, if it's I had like to summarize Short burst it, in, short burst out it kind is, of thing. It, it, no, no, it was really, really deep breaths, but do it like 30 times. So imagine going like, like really big deep, but do it like 30 times in a row and relaxes you because you're Mm -hmm. hyper oxygenating your brain. But it also creates this like just sense of tranquility, which I'm a, I don't know if you know this about me, Kurt, but I am an anxious dude. I can be nervous Nelly sometimes. I'm like, I could be, you know, my, it's like my wife said, you got bad nerves, Um, (laughs) but it totally, totally chills me out. So anyways, I won't go further than that. Just a couple of books for you and an article for you on the importance uh, of breathing. Well, the at my gym, we when we have a particularly difficult workout, we do box breathing, which is breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, out for four seconds, hold for four seconds. Which you know that's that's the box, four sides of the box. Yeah, it's hard, especially after a good workout. But 
I, I think it does. It, it calms your breathing. It's supposed to have really strong, like stress reduction, uh, characteristics as well. Um, I, we've talked about this uh, several times. Uh, maybe this should be a show. Maybe we should have somebody on that actually knows what they're talking about. Anyways, I'll leave it there. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. 